There we go. And we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Guide to Existence. I'm your host, Rabbi G. And today I want to talk about Purim. Purim is the holiday we've all been waiting for. It's the one day when our true colors come out and we get to really be ourselves. Purim is by far my favorite Jewish holiday, and I hope it's yours as well. And if it's not yet yours, then you haven't experienced Purim correctly. So let me know if you need help making Purim plans, and I will find you a place to go to experience the most, what is known as in Kabbalah as the holiest day of the year in Judaism. I bet you didn't know that. But we're not going to talk about that tonight. We could talk about that a different time, and maybe I'll post something on the podcast from my annual Purim class about the all the customs of Purim. But tonight I want to talk about something different. We're going to start with this week's Parsha. This week's Parsha begins the third book of the Torah, the book Vayikra, which is also the name of the first Parsha. And he called in English known as the book of Leviticus. And we're not going to get into the themes of the book of Leviticus right now, but primarily the whole book is devoted to the laws of the Kohanim. The Kohanim, the priests and the service in the temple, the sacrifices and the altar and the incense and all the different things that went on in the temple. But tonight I want to talk about the first word of the Parsha and how it ties into Purim. And this Shabbos is not only the Shabbos before Purim, but as with every year, the Shabbos before Purim, it's a special Shabbos known as Shabbos Zachar. Zachar means to remember. What do we remember on Shabbos Zachar? Does anyone know? On Shabbos Zachar, we read a Parsha from the Torah, which according to many opinions is the only reading from the Torah that's done on a Shabbos that is biblical. We are biblically commanded to read this Parsha every year. And that is the Parsha of Amalek. Amalek, the arch enemy of the Jewish people, who tried to destroy the Jewish people, and who we believe rises up in every generation to try to destroy the Jewish people. Amalek is that force we've talked about in the past that tries to get the Jews to forget God and forget the Torah. And we'll discuss exactly what Amalek's mission is in a moment. Amalek is the arch enemy of the Jewish people, and we're sworn to eradicate their memory, and yet we're also sworn, we're also commanded to remember what they did to us every single year and to read it from the Torah. That is the only reading of the Torah, which is a biblical commandment. Every week when we read from the Torah, it's not a biblical commandment. It's a custom that we read from the Torah. Maybe Moses initiated it or Ezra initiated it, but it's not biblical. It's not a commandment to read from the Torah, except for this week. So why do we remember Amalek before Purim? Because Purim is a holiday where Amalek tried to destroy us. Amalek is a self-destructive force that will sacrifice everything to try to destroy the Jewish people. From Haman to Hitler, and everyone in between. Amalek is the arch enemy of the Jewish people. So how is Amalek alluded to in in this week's Parsha as well? So the first word of this week's Parsha is Vayikra. 
and God called to Moshe. But there's a problem with the ver- word Vayikra. If you look carefully at the ver- word Vayikra, there is a letter which is small. It's written small. In every single Torah scroll, scroll throughout time, this letter is written small. And that is a small aleph. We find that throughout the Torah, there are certain letters that by tradition passed down for all the genera- from all the generations from Moshe, there are certain letters that are written large or small, weird sizes. There's a few of them throughout the Torah. And sometimes we don't, we don't really know the meaning. With the, and there's many different explanations. So too, by the way, I'll just add in, since we're on the topic of Purim, the Megillah, the Megillah's Esther, the scroll of Esther, which we read on Purim, also has certain letters that are written big or small. Did you ever hear about this? You heard about this? The Purim, the, the Megillah code? Yeah, some letters have crowns, but in the Torah, but in the Megillah, they're actually, this is one of the most famous uh, teachings of the Megillah, which we're not going to go into now, but that encoded in the big and small letters is the year um, of the Nuremberg trials. And one of the rabbis pointed out that just like in in these these letter in, this letter code is listed in the ten sons of Haman who were hung, and it says in the Megillah, Esther says to the king, "Do for me tomorrow what you did for me today, and hang the ten sons of Haman again tomorrow." And everyone's puzzled. What do you mean? Why is she asking him to hang Haman's sons again? They're already hanging. And they point that one of the great rabbis of the past generation. Who was very into codes that were in, that were hidden in in the Torah points out that the ten sons of Haman, the ten sons of Amalek, the arch enemy of Jewish people, were hung again in the future. At the Nuremberg trials, there were ten Nazis who were hung, and literally encoded in the the names of those ten sons, there are three small letters and one big letter, and those spell out the exact Hebrew date, the year of the Nuremberg trials. And to make matters even spookier, as they were leading Julius Streicher, who was the head of Der Sturmer, he was the editor of Der Sturmer, which was the Nazi newspaper. And as he was being one of the greatest anti-Semites, he helped orchestrate the whole message of, of the Nazi party. As he was being led to the gallows, he turned to face the cameras and he yelled out, Purim Fest, 1945. How weird is that? (laughs) Very weird. (laughs) Okay, but Mike, at my house on Purim, we might actually look at those sources together. Maybe. I usually print it out and put it out on the table.
send send it to me send it I'll take a look alright I'll take a look alright so we have codes in, in alluded into the Torah what's the significance of the small olive in the word Vayikra and God called to Moshe so Rashi points out the word looks like it says Vayikar Vayikar means comes from the Hebrew word mikra, which means happenstance. When you add an aleph to the word happenstance, it equals a calling. What's the difference between a happenstance and a calling? What's a happenstance mean? If God happened upon Moshe, and Rashi points out that God happens upon Bilaam, who was like the the enemy, the enemy of Moshe, happened upon him. But to Moshe, God called him. What's the difference between a calling and a happenstance? Excellent. Coincidence versus intention. And that's exactly the point we want to discuss today. What's the significance of the small olive? Is that the world looks like a happenstance. The world looks like a coincidence. The world looks like it's random. And that is the message of Amalek. When Amalek attacks the Jewish people in the Torah, it uses the exact same word. Asher karcha baderech. The word mikra, happenstance, that Amalek happened upon the Jews. And we learn from this that Amalek's whole message, their, their mission, their raison d'etre, is that everything is coincidence. Everything is chance. And the numerical value for the word Amalek is safek, which means doubt. Their job is to instill doubt in us that maybe God is hidden. Maybe God is not with us. Maybe everything is really just a coincidence. And we've talked about that in the past. And, and I'm going to, again, post my, my, my annual Purim class on this topic. But Amalek's message is everything is random. What's the Jewish people's mission by that token? What's the opposite of that message? Everything has a purpose. The Jewish people's mission is that nothing is random. Everything is part of a bigger picture. So says the Torah, Vayikra, God called to Moshe. It looks like the word Vayikar. It looks random. But if you look closely, there's a little Aleph at the end of the word. The letter Aleph symbolizes God because the letter Aleph has a numerical value of one, oneness. And the word Aleph symbolizes, means literally in Hebrew, Aluf means a chief. God is called the Aluf Olam, the chief of the world, the first of the world, the oneness of the world. If you look closely at the circumstances of your life, at the coincidences, the happenstances, you see a little olive. God is calling you. Changes the word to Vayikra. God is calling you through the coincidences of your life. And this, my friends, is on the contrary to what Amalek teaches, that everything's random. 
looking at the coincidences of your life is actually the ABCs of developing a relationship with God. Because when you look at the coincidences of your life, you realize that everything that happens to you is meaningful. There are no coincidences. So instead of thinking that it's random when things work out or when things don't work out, realize that there's a message. God is speaking directly to you. Everything that happens to your life, the Baal Shem Tov teaches, is a message directly from the creator of the universe to you. Whatever happens, any conversation you hear on the street, anytime something bad happens, you stub your toe, you can't find your keys, your car breaks down, you get stuck in traffic. It's all a message from the universe. What does this have to do with Purim, my friends? That is the very message of Purim in the Purim story. There is no mention of who. Who's not mentioned once in the Purim story, in the Megillah? Not even once. You guys know? Moshe is not mentioned in the Purim story, but Moshe lived many, many hundreds, of, thousands of years before the Purim story. But even more important than Moshe. Who's more important than Moshe? Hashem, there is no mention of God in the Megillah. The Megillah from beginning to end is a whole bunch of random, natural coincidences. Just a bunch of random happenstances, a whole bunch of chance. And yet the story comes together that you realize the whole thing is orchestrated by the hidden hand of Hashem. The little Aleph who's calling to us from behind the scenes of history. That's the message of Purim. And in fact, the word Purim, what does the word Purim mean? You know what it means? Anyone speak uh, ancient Persian, ancient Farsi? The word Purim is a Persian word. It means lottery. Because what's the mechanism by which a lottery runs? Chance. The whole story looks like chance. The whole story looks like we're not in control, and yet Hashem is running the show from beginning to end. And that's the explanation for, uh, according to the Bnei Susk, great Hasidic master, says that Purim and Hanukkah are opposite holidays. On Hanukkah, God is openly revealed, miracles. We win this miraculous war, and the lights, the candles burn for eight days to show us that it's a miraculous victory. And on, on, Pur on Hanukkah, what do we spin? We spin the dreidel. Well, on Purim, we also spin something. What do we spin on, on Purim? A grogger. We spin a grogger, which is like this, this like noisemaker. But they're opposites. Because you see a dreidel, you spin from above. The hand comes from above and spins the dreidel. A grogger, the hand comes from below and spins the grogger. What's the message? That on Hanukkah, Hashem's hand comes down from heaven and spins the world. You see Hashem's open miracle. And yet on Purim, Hashem's hand comes from below. He spins the world also, but hidden underneath the scenes, behind the scenes of history. You guys with me? So now, the message we take from Purim is that everything that happens in life no matter how random or dark it seems, no matter how great the tragedy, just wait. There is a miracle waiting to come out.
Just wait. The Jewish message in life is when times seem dark, when it looks like there's no happy ending, that means, you know what that means? It means it's not the end. When things look bad, it means it's not the end because everything is good in the end. Everything is good in the end. If it's not good, you know what that means? It's not the end. Just hang on. Wait for the sequel because it's coming out soon to theaters near you. Okay? So one of the messages that the Kabbalists teach us, a theme that we see throughout the Purim story, is the concept that from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe, which was a great song written by Metis Yahu, the formerly Hasidic Jewish rapper and reggae star. Um, from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe. Another concept that is similar to this that says in the Talmud is that God always prepares the medicine before the sickness. That when there's something bad happening to you, know that the seeds of redemption have already been planted. They're already coming. And that's why we say that Mashiach will be born on Tishabav. What's Tishabav? Tishabav is the day of the destruction of the temple. Mashiach is born on Tishabav. That when the temple is destroyed, know that the redemption, the ultimate redemption, is already in the works. It just hasn't been revealed yet. So we see this story exemplified through the Purim story. The Purim story begins, King Ahasuerus. And by the way, I want to mention that many of the ideas I'm going to share with you tonight, everything I said so far was mine. From here on, I'm going to be sharing you with some insights that I heard from an amazing share from Rabbi Daniel Gladstein, who is an amazing rabbi in the five towns. And I listened to a lot of his classes. Very amazing. Um, so he says as follows. What's the story of the Purim? What, what, overall, what's the general story of Purim? Is that King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, the Persian emperor, create, makes a massive feast, a celebration that lasts for many, many days. He invites all the nations of the world to come to this party to celebrate that the Jewish temple has not been rebuilt. Because there was a prophecy and a calculation that the Jews would be exiled in in Persia or in Babylon for a certain amount of time. And when that time ended, he made a celebration to show that the Jews were no longer the chosen people. Not the last time in history that people would claim that the Jews were no longer the chosen people. And he, but the Talmud says he messed up in his calculation. He was wrong. And really the temple would be rebuilt. He just made the wrong calculation and started counting when to calculate those years. So the whole story begins with this celebration to basically mock the Jews. And he took out the vessels from the temple and he drank from those vessels and he wore the garments of the Kohen Gadol in order to rub it into the Jews that you are no longer going back to Jerusalem. How does the story end? How does the poor story end? So then there's a crazy turn of events. Ahasuerus ends up killing his wife at that party. He has to choose a new wife. A wife is chosen. Who's the new wife that he chooses? None other than Esther, a Jewish girl. 
suddenly there's a Jewish girl in the in the kingdom. Mordechai refuses to bow down to the viceroy Haman. Haman wants to kill all the Jews. Haman erects a gallows, 50 almost tall, extremely tall gallows, on which he wants to hang Mordechai. Crazy turn of events. It's decreed that all the Jews will be killed on one day. Haman bribes the king, gets the king to agree to this. Then there's a flip around. In the end, Haman gets hung on the very gallows that he erected to hang Mordechai. On that, he himself is hung. Esther is already in the palace. She goes and she pleads for the Jewish people. She was already there from the beginning of the story before anything bad happened. She pleads for the life of the Jewish people. Achashverus agrees to save the Jewish people. Letters are sent out. The Jewish people can defend themselves. In the end, the Jews end up defending themselves and killing all of their enemies. Horam is a story of the great turnaround. Everything flips around for good. Mordechai becomes the viceroy. There's only one strange part of the story. The very end of the book says, and Mordechai issued a tax to all the kingdoms in his empire. It's like, huh? That's the end of the story. It's like, wait, wait, was there supposed to be like, and then they lived happily ever after, and then the Jews went back to the land of Israel, and then Esther came home. But no, Esther stays in the palace, married to Ahasuerus, who was not a great guy. And the story ends with a tax issued to all the people of the kingdom. What's the significance of the tax? Well, guess what? Esther has a son. You know what his name is? Darius the first. He inherits the throne, becomes the next Persian emperor. And you know what Darius does? He says, Jews, go back and build your temple in Jerusalem. And you know what? Take the money from the coffers. We just collected taxes. Take some of that money and go rebuild your temple. So Akashverosh, the whole story starts, Akashverosh thinks that he's celebrating the Jews not returning to their temple. In the end, he funds the Jews returning to their temple. That's from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe. That the redemption comes about from our enemies. That is the greatest revelation of Hashem's presence in this world, is seeing Jewish history. One time, Louis, the XVII, or something like that, Louis the Fourteenth. That was that right? XVII. No, Louis the Seventeenth. Louis the Seventeenth said to Pascal, the great philosopher and mathematician, "Tell me a proof for God's existence." You know what Pascal said? The Jews, Your Majesty, the Jews, because through Jewish history, we see God's hand with us, running the show. Because you know why they call it history, and not history. Don't worry, they're going to call it her story soon, or its story, or their story, because it's his story. Hashem is running the show from beginning to end. Okay, that's that's the story of Purim. And let's I want to show you a few examples Rabbi Gladstone brings down and a few of my own that exemplify this point throughout Jewish history. First of all, first Mashiach of the Jewish people is Moshe. Paro makes a decree, all the Jews should be thrown into the river and be drowned. 
Moshe's mother tries to hide him as long as she can. And finally she says, I can't do it. She's not going to drown him, though. He puts, she puts him in a little basket, puts him down the Nile River. Who picks up Moshe? None other than the daughter of Paro, Basia. The daughter of Paro himself takes Moshe in and raises him in Paro's palace. Paro wants to destroy the Jews. It turns out that he himself raises Moshe, who's going to redeem the Jews and destroy Paro. Unbelievable. Let me tell you another unbelievable example. I've said this one before in the past. The Queen Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain, they decide to wage a holy war and rid Spain of all infidels. Their, way, their war initially is against the Muslims, the Moors, and they get all the Muslims out. They reclaim the land. The Iberian Peninsula is Christian. And then they turn their war against the Jews. And they, they rid Spain of all its Jews, besides the many Muranos, conversos, who decide to convert because they can't leave due to financial reasons. And Spain, that's, that's as we know it, the Inquisition, which killed and tortured thousands and thousands of Jews. What day? did the Inquisition begin? On what day was the decree to expel all Jews from Spain? That's right. It was on Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av of what year? Fourteen ninety-two. The same year that what happened? sailed the ocean blue but not only the same year do you know what day Columbus set sail for America he thought he was going to the India right Tishabov of 1492 Columbus was set to sail but he pushed off his journey one day the day that Ferdinand and Isabella kicked the Jews out. It was the golden age of Spain. The Jews were prospering financially, artistically. They were running the government. They were on in such high places. And he said, never again will the Jews live in such comfort in the Christian world. And little did he know it, on that very day, he was paving the way for possibly the most successful, financially successful era of the Jewish people in America. Once again, thanks none other than to Ferdinand and Isabella, the Jewish people moved on to their next journey in the New World. Let's see another, yet another example. Perhaps one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people in recent time was none other than Joseph Stalin. The anti-Semitism in the former Soviet Union, Mike, existent? <laughs> just, just a lot, right? Just a lot, All right? Jews, Jews. Uh, I just saw an amazing quote. I posted it. I don't know if you saw it. 
from Nathan Sharansky. Nathan Sharansky spent uh, over a decade, I believe, in solitary confinement in a Soviet prison for tr for the crime of trying to immigrate emigrate to Israel. And Nathan Sharansky says, when I grew up in the in the former Soviet Union. He said, it didn't make a difference if you were Ukrainian or Belarusian or, or Russian. Hey, I'll read you the quote. Listen to this. When I was growing up in Ukraine, there were many nations and nationalities. There were those with identity, identity papers that read Russian, Ukrainian, Georgian, or Kazakh. It wasn't so important since there was not that much difference between them. They spoke similar languages. I mean, they, they all had their own cultural differences, but it didn't make so much of a difference. There was one single designation that stood out that was different than everyone else, and that was Jew. If you had the word Ivre stamped on your passport, it was like you had a disease. We knew nothing about Judaism. There was nothing significant about our Jewish identity other than the anti-Semitism, hatred, and discriminatory treatment we experienced because of it. When it came to university application, for example, no one tried to change his designation from Russian to Ukrainian because it didn't matter. However, if you could change your designation of Jew, it substantially improved your chances of university admission. This week, I was reminded of those days when I saw thousands of people standing at the borders of Ukraine trying to escape. They are standing there day and night, and there is only one word that can help them get out. Jew. If you are a Jew, there are Jews outside who care about you and are waiting for you. One of the th facts that helped bring down the Soviet Union was the thousands of Jews around the Western world who lobbied and protested to let our people go. The world has changed. When I was a child, Jew was an unfortunate designation. No one envied us. But today on the Ukrainian border, identifying as a Jew is a most fortunate circumstance. It describes those who have a place to go, where their family, an entire nation, is waiting for them on the other side. That's what it means to be a Jew. Perhaps, <laughs> we'll come back to this at the end, but Joseph Stalin was no friend of Israel. And no friend of anyone, really. But <laughs> he certainly was no friend of the Jewish people. He murdered and oppressed Jews at every opportunity. And he was ideally, ideologically opposed to Zionism. However, he had a brief moment of insanity between the years 1947 and 1948. Stalin temporarily decided to support the formation of the state of Israel. Random and unexpected and led the vote in the UN towards the partition, towards the partition mandate along with the United States to give part of the land to, to, to the state of Israel. And Soviet influence brought along Poland, Ukraine, Czechoslovakia, Belarus, Belarus, 
none famous for their love of Jews. And then Stalin instructed Czechoslovakia to sell much-needed weapon and equipment to the fledgling Israeli army, greatly stemming the tide of the war. By the time he came to his senses and canceled the weapons sale, it was too late and the war had already been won. So one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people becomes unwittingly, in his efforts to thwart Britain, unwittingly becomes the greatest ally of the Jewish people in, 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 in assisting us in the founding of the state of Israel. In 1951 to 1953, Stalin was part of a conspiracy known as the Doctor's Plot. Mike, you know about it? The Doctor's Plot, which six prominent Jewish doctors were accused of poisoning and murdering certain uh, Russian officials. And Stalin's plan was to create massive pogroms throughout the Soviet Union and then offer the Jews protection by shipping all the Jews to, the, to Siberia. He had already prepared concentration camps in Siberia and the goal was to exterminate all 4 million Russian Soviet Jews. The day this plan was supposed to go into effect, do you know what happened? Stalin had a stroke that would eventually kill him. The plan was abolished. Do you know what day that stroke took place? Quorum. You might say it was a stroke of luck. Or you might say it was once again the hand of the creator, the hidden hand that is forever stirring up history. A few more amazing things to note about the founding of the state of Israel, that the Arab nations were happy to take the partition plan to the United Nations because they were certain that Israel would not have the two-thirds majority vote that would enable them to found, to form a state. So they, they looked forward to it. Unfortunately, they didn't realize that the vote would be made publicly in New York City, surrounded by thousands of pro-Zionist observers who greatly influenced the many swing delegates who did not have clear instructions from their governments, thereby pushing forward the two-thirds majority vote. Another amazing point, Harry Truman decided to support the establishment of the State of Israel. This is very surprising, given the fact that Harry Truman himself was no friend of the Jews. Harry Truman was known as being an anti-Semite. His two closest confidants, Secretary of State General George Marshall and Defense Secretary James Forrestal, urged him in the strongest of terms possible, do not support the Jews. 
do not support the foundation of the state of Israel. Providence dictated that he needed the Jewish vote to help win re-election in 1948. So Truman decided to vote in favor. After the establishment of the state, the first chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yitzhak Herzog, told President Truman that God brought him into the world in order to be the first world leader in 2,000 years to establish a Jewish state in the land of Israel. Truman had tears in his eyes when he heard this because as a child, one of his greatest heroes was Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was the emperor of the Persian Empire before Ahasuerus, who began construction of the temple. Those plans were then thwarted by Ahasuerus and subsequent rulers until Darius then went ahead and finished the construction of those plans. In 1953, Harry Truman publicly declared, I am Cyrus. Wow. Once again, an enemy of the Jewish people becomes their greatest ally. Um, Paul, British historian Paul Johnson stated, after the foundation of the state of Israel, in the last half century, over 100 completely new independent states have come into existence. Right? Hundreds of new countries were developed in the past century. Israel is the only one whose creation can fairly be called a miracle. Hidden hand of God. Another example. And by the way, we may go so far as to say, for those of you who know, the many of the Arabs uh, deny the Holocaust. Right? Holocaust denial in Arab states is higher than anywhere else in the world. In the millions. Hundreds of millions. And one of the reasons that the Arabs deny the Holocaust is because they claim that the Holocaust was made up by the Zionists in order to convince the world to feel bad for the Jews in order that they would give us a place of our own. Now, whether or not that's true, certainly we know the Holocaust is real. But if you think about it, perhaps one can go so far as to say that Hitler who attempted to destroy the Jewish people, who eradicated the Jewish communities of Europe, just like Ferdinand and Isabella, who kicked the Jews out of Spain, perhaps Hitler was also in inadvertently paving the way to the next Jewish homeland, the next and final Jewish homeland, because immediately after the Holocaust came the foundation of the state of Israel. So perhaps we can go so far as to say that even Hitler assisted us with beginning the return process to the land of Israel. And finally, we'll, we'll conclude with one more amazing story, which I'm not going to go into in depth. But if anyone wants to learn about the miracles of modern Jewish history, learn about the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War, at the, at the eve of the Six-Day War, there were only 275,000 Israeli troops, greatly outnumbered compared to over 456,000 Iraqi, Syrian, Jordanian, and Egyptian armies. They were, they were completely outnumbered. Right? The Arab forces had a decided edge with regards to weaponry 
and military equipment. They boasted more than double the amount of tanks, four times the amount of combat aircraft. And the Israelis were expecting another Holocaust. Many people thought this was the, be the end of the fledgling state of Israel. And yet, against all odds, in six days, Israel waged a preemptive strike for their survival, an existential defense. And in six days, they eradicated all of their neighboring Arab country armies. And they tripled the size of the land of Israel, reclaiming Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, the Jordan River, and the Sinai Peninsula. How did they do that? The story is absolutely incredible. Coincidence after coincidence. From the Jordan, Jordanian Air Force changing their codes so that the, so that they didn't understand what was being told to them. Literally, they had just changed the codes, and for some reason, they had forgotten to tell the air the pilots who saw Israeli planes coming over, and they didn't get the message to the Egyptian army, having spent stayed up late the night before partying and slept in, to, I, I think it was, the Egyptians thinking that this incoming aircraft was one of their own planes and not shooting it down, to... Um, I believe the Syrians trying to get wet planes from Russia. Russia, again, was supposed to send advanced planes to Syria, but they had to disguise the planes because they didn't want to outright attack Israel with Russian planes. So they had to paint the planes the color of the Syrian planes. And yet, in the whole state of Russia, they could not find green paint. That's the former Soviet Union, my friends. They couldn't use the plants. And miracle after miracle, coincidence after coincidence, leading to the, the conclusion of the Six-Day War. Again, my friends, Jewish history is the greatest proof of God's existence. And finally, perhaps... We don't know what's happening in human in history today. We don't know what the outcome is of the war in Ukraine. We don't know if it will be good for the world now, but we do know it will eventually be good for the world because everything that happens in history is Hashem's hidden hand. And perhaps, perhaps we don't know, but like Nathan Sharansky said, perhaps this is just another ploy to get more Jews back the land of Israel, more Jews out of Ukraine. We don't know. We don't know where this is going, and we don't know if Putin, Putin is a friend or a foe, seems certainly like a foe. But even the greatest enemies of the Jewish people have ended up being our greatest allies. May we speedily see the end of this story, not only with peace in Ukraine, but peace in the entire world. And may we all speedily 
see the redemption that we've been longing for, that we've been praying for for 2,000 years, the Jewish people returning to the land of Israel together. And that means with you, because I'm not going back unless you're going back with me. And we all have to go back together because we're one nation and we'll only really experience the state of Israel if our entire family goes back together. Thank you guys for listening. And I want to show you all a beautiful Purim. And now I'd love to hear any questions or comments. Let's begin. Let's begin to internalize this message by observing the coincidences in our own life. Because each and every one of us have our own journey. And Hashem is in our own life and with us, just like he's running the show of history. He's also running the show of our own experiences. And even in the times that look like tragedies, hardships, traumas, challenges, tribulations, Hashem is also behind the scenes in our own lives, helping to bring out the best in us. And all we have to do is rise to the occasion and learn from those experiences to become the greatest you you can be.